Welcome to Becker's Clinical Leadership Virtual Event. My name is Morgan Hafner. I'm an editor with Becker's Hospital Review and will be your moderator for today's discussion on the best things leaders do to foster respect and collegiality on high-performing medical teams. The pandemic has put unprecedented pressures on the resources and safety of our country's medical teams. We've seen stories of immense challenges juxtaposed with stories of bravery, hope, and camaraderie among frontline medical workers. For leaders of those workers, maintaining a highly engaged team has likely never been as challenging or rewarding as it is today. I'm so excited to discuss best practices for leading high-performing medical teams with our elite group of presenters. With us today are Dr. Sean Tajarti, the Chief Clinical Integration Officer for WMC Health Network and the Chairman of OBGYN at New York Medical College, Peter Ponovos, Chief Clinical Transformation and Chief Quality Officer of University Hospitals Health System, Mary Vandekamp, Chief Clinical Officer and Senior Vice President of Administration at Kindred Rehab Services, and Dr. Ernest Wong, Chief of Emergency Medicine at North Shore University Health System. Thank you all so much for joining us today and bringing your dynamic perspectives to the conversation. I know you all have been on medical teams at various points in your career and throughout your academic experiences as well. So in your own words, how would you define a high-performing medical team? And Mary, I'll throw that question to you first, and then Dr. Wong can weigh in. Thank you. Um, I'm very excited to be here and um, appreciate my panel uh, members as well and hope to learn from them. I think, you know, over the years, there's been one quality that seems to um, emanate from all the, the highest um, acting teams, and that's trust. There's a level that one must have with one's coworker in order to perform at your highest level. And that trust is such a incredibly um, fragile um, expectation because if, if it's broken at any time, I think the team really struggles with building that back. So I've seen amazing teams that just come together with a full appreciation that their teammate is, um, is going to do what they're expected to do. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, to be on this panel with uh, these distinguished uh, presenters as well. So, you know, a high-performing medical team is really what keeps me afloat, and I can't do my job without them. And I always say that uh, every high-performing team has the three H's, and this is the head, the heart, and the hands, all right? You have to have the clinical skills. You have to have the uh, uh, the knowledge that you need to be able to take care of the, uh, the situation, and you have to have the attitude uh, to, to go with it. And so, you know, um, in addition to trust, uh, there has to be mutual respect. Uh, you, everyone has to be able to have a sense of shared uh, leadership and to be able to share that leadership, have it be fluid, uh, because uh, I know on my team who has the, the skills that are needed at that moment, and we have to be able to, to do that uh, in a selfless way. So every team, whether it's ad hoc or in an experienced group, has those qualities. Absolutely. And Peter, I'll ask you next. Are there any attributes that you would add that um, Dr. Wong or Mary didn't hit on? 
Yeah, th th thank you. And much of this builds upon my <clears throat> many years as a critical care physician, like Dr. Wong, it's effective teams are critical. And, and if I think about asking clinicians when they hummed as a team, it's often in the face of adversity. It's during a blizzard when you don't get to go home right? or a crisis comes in. So it's not resources. What we know is that teams that are effective do several things. They spend enormous amounts of time reflecting on how they work together so that they are an expert team, not a team of experts. They align around a common purpose and COVID did that with laser, laser focus. And they clarify the task that they're going to do. They have a discipline of getting regular feedback and self-correction. So, hey, I'm comfortable. Peter, you, you know, you didn't do that well. And they encourage self-divergent um, views, i.e. speaking up uh, on rounds, and, and they actively manage conflicts. I mean, to, so to give you a concrete example in a clinical role in an ICU is the teams would love it when there's enough trust with a nurse says, Peter, I'm worried. And there's no question about, well, tell me your story. What worry translates to is I will stop what I'm doing and be at the bedside right now because of that mutual respect and uh, uh, honoring uh, of, each of, each, of each team member's professionalism. Absolutely, and Dr. Pigard, I'll let you weigh in as well. What are your thoughts? What is, makes a high-performing medical team? Uh, first of all, thank you again for having me. I uh, feel really honored to be among the uh, distinguished uh, panel here today. And I think just in uh, maybe reiteration or in addition to that, I think when I think about team, I think about culture. Culture just pervades everything in a team. And the moment you lose that, the components are of that safety zone that uh, Peter talked about, the, the three H's that Ernest uh, was guiding us to, and certainly... Uh, what Mary said, which is critical, you uh, build trust, uh, you know, uh, a, a drop at a time and you lose it a bucket at a time. So I think that culture that pervades, it's really important. A few other things that I think are important because a team is obviously made up of members and each of them will perform a certain task. And when you think about what was one of the most transformative teams was the Apollo team that put the man on the moon. And when you ask anybody on that mission, what do you do here, is I put a man on the moon. So if in our office, everybody says I'm here to help somebody cure cancer or I'm, I'm helping in someone's cancer care, then I think we've won, the, we've won that sort of part of the, developing what we call the internal locus of drive of people that it's something beyond myself. There's a comfort zone that I can speak there is a shared mission that is beyond myself and that the idea that I offer belongs really to the group. So it allows me to consult in a detached and detached way in a way that is passionate, but dispassionate, but not passionately attached that I can't let it go of it. And really learning how to share the pie. I think culture is just pervasive. Uh, without that culture, you just don't have a team because it'll be to some point in time, but then at some point in time, you lose it. And the number one feedback I get is, I feel that I'm doing something bigger than myself. You know, if, if I could just build upon that, because I think that's so spot on and really thinking of it as a team of teams where every employee of an organization is connected to purpose. I, I visited an aircraft carrier to learn about safety and high reliability. And 
I asked the gentleman sweeping the deck, you know, very low on the power hierarchy, but very high in the safety, what job he did. And he stopped what he was doing, stood up tall and proud, looked me in the eye and said, sir, I helped planes take off and land safely to serve the mission of the United States. Sadly, I've walked into scores of hospitals in the U.S. and asked an environmental services worker, sometimes even a resident or a nurse or an MA, what job do you do? And too often, they don't look up proud. They turn away almost shamefully and say, I clean the bathrooms, right? Or I sweep the floors. And I think we have to create the culture where every employee, not just doctors and nurses, feels part of that team and connected to purpose, that they're healers. So you said it brilliantly. Yeah, that's really, really uh, true. Um, I totally agree with that. The one thing I think I'm hearing, and I think one of uh, when you said that, you know, when someone says I'm worried, they'd stop immediately what they're doing because there's a trust. There's a humility, too, that I think brings leadership to a level that there, you know, there is no hierarchy, as you said, Peter. There's not one's job's not more important and everyone has a voice. And that is a very difficult culture, as you said, Tushan. How do we how do we make sure that there's an equality in, in opinion and in goals? And so I think it's humble leaders, it's humble um, guiders of care that allow us to be open and feel comfortable and safe um, when, we, when we have something to say. Absolutely. I think, you know, the other uh, benefit of that type of environment is that the unity that that creates is so lasting that it leaves almost no comfort zone for disunity to exist. You sort of remove all those unnecessary lapses in the space of your unity, that it doesn't allow disunity to seep in in a way. And if it does, it's easy to recognize. And you have, just like uh, Peter has uh, graciously given us this checklist and all the thoughts that we've had in our time, that it, you sort of bring yourself back to a point of care and say, all right, so how do, we, how do we make this better? How do we sort of, what is it that's causing this sense that's uncomfortable? And people who are in a united team the moment you feel that sense of disunity, it's really like an uncomfortable pain. And the team actually recognize that collectively. So I think there is just once you see it, it's something that you just don't want to get out of. It's like the many examples like Southwest Airlines. Everybody has the same job. You see the, the pilot coming in and cleaning up and turning that airport, you know, that airplane right on time. So it's it's a feeling that once you have it, you don't want to leave it. Yeah, it's like flow. And I think when you get in a good flow, if you're in resuscitation, the flow is just going. Everybody knows exactly what they got to do. Uh, it, it's it's really amazing to either watch or be part of. And so I think for me, one of the really great opportunities to consolidate that is in the debrief after you've gone through it mm -hmm. and help people to remember that feeling because that's what you want to get to and uh, really emphasize that because people – uh, we'll, we'll remember that. You know, Morgan, just to think about pragmatically one of the ways that we build, build these, I'll just give an example from a few days ago. A, a patient sent a very nice note on email and mentioned one of our front office staff who, when we had gone to for an interview, uh, she asked, she goes, you know, why would you, why are you here to interview me? I said, well, you know, you'd be representing the department, quite frankly, that tells you how important your role is, that of course I'll be here at seven o'clock at a recruitment uh, dinner because that's important who you are. So when she wrote that note, the patient did, 
I think just small steps, the little touches that makes a difference. You put, take that out, print it, and with a handwritten note, go and deliver that to the front office clerk. It is transformative that you actually took it. It's not just forwarding yet another email. It takes five minutes. You print that out, nice job, print, you know, highlight her name, put it in a card and give it to them. You know, it's just transformative. The little stuff matters. People want to feel that they're part of something bigger. So just as a note of uh, literally two days ago, and I think we as leaders have to be conscious to take the time to sort of do that no matter how busy you get during the day. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We've started a recognition program that, you know, is pretty robust and it, it is peer-to-peer -peer or it is, you know, boss to or leader to employee. And what's really important is when, when most of the team receive it, they're shocked. Um, it, it, it should be like, you know, an automatic, like this is, you know, of course, but because we are so busy and healthcare, um, I, there's a great book that says, fill my bucket. And it's the fact that every time you, you know, are in a um, healthcare arena, you're taking something, you know, from a bucket um, as the, as you, as a, ther as a therapist or a nurse or a doctor, you're, you're having to give so much who fills the bucket of the caregiver. And it's amazing how those little things, to your point, it did, People think sometimes, um, you know, dollar amounts make a difference. Well, certainly it, it's never, you know, but it really is more about those moments and the power of a, of a leadership role really in the impact that you can make. I think that's such a good point. Recognition is just so important, but sometimes busier than um, we are, we, we might not think through that. You know, I, building upon that, um, Dr. Don Obedient, one of the fathers of quality on his deathbed, was asked what's the secret of quality. And he said, the secret of quality is love. And as I reflected on that, because it's one of the most moving words I've heard, there's a brilliant book called Love 2.0 by Barbara Friedrichson, where she describes love as micro moments of positive connection between two people. The idea is I feel warm towards you and you feel warm towards me and we create energy. So love is a hand on a worried patient. It's an arm around a colleague who just made a mistake. It's a respectful spy, smile to the homeless person suggest, saying, I value you. And if I believe deeply and think what we're trying to do, all of healthcare quality in this effort is all about love. It's those micro moments that you scale and snowball and allows you to build a culture that the big changes are easy because the foundation is, is all there. And when I reflect on what we're really trying to do with, with culture, the kind of culture we're talking about is the kind of culture that is more joyful. It is better patient experience and it's safer. It's all the things we're trying to do. We use different words to describe it, but that feeling, that underlying love is what holds it all together. I agree more. And I, I wish that word love, uh, Peter, was uh, used more often. It's absolutely the driver. And when you say that to patients or people around in a and a way that people understand what you're saying that, uh, you know, I think when you develop the proper culture and thoughtfulness around it, people can take that word and really is something that's not utilized very often. And unfortunately, without joy, who wants to do this? Who wants to Correct. do anything uh, that takes so much out of you? And it's interesting because if I ask clinicians or I reflect in my own clinical career or even non-clinicians, what's your most memorable moments? It's not some great surgery or some, you know, tantalizing diagnosis. It's, it's a soft, loving 
micro moment. I mean, that's what we remember, right? That's the juice that gives us the energy for this, this Absolutely. you know, often very challenging jobs that we have. So many, so many themes that have come up in everything that you're saying. I love the comment that um, Peter made about the hum of a good team working together. And Dr. Pizrati, the, the when you're in it, you don't want to leave it. You know what it is. I think those, everything that each of you said really goes into that. And I want to flip the conversation just a little bit and talk about maybe when those parts aren't humming correctly and when things aren't going as well, because I think that conversation is equally as important about as the resolutions. Um, so let's talk about when medical teams aren't necessarily high performing. Um, I'll start with you, Dr. Tedrazi. Um, what are the most common conflicts that you see arise in medical teams? Coach, call me Sean, please. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I think the things that you see is sort of the mirror of what we just highlighted. Um, what I see is when behavioral is not modeled, honestly. I think you have to model, model, model behavior. You ask that of yourself, you ask that of your leaders. And once you begin to do that, uh, and I think when you see problems arise, you need to take a pause and look and see what is the root of it. And most of it is about modeling, most of it is about people not feeling that they're part of a mission. Most of it is also making it, instead of a, if you put people in a circumstance at some point in time, if you don't give a commonality of, of purpose, people tend to find a lot of conflicts between themselves for whatever reason. And if you really think about it, we have a picture on the walls in our offices and Everywhere you go, people know that picture. It's almost like a planetary picture with the sun in the middle, and that's the patient. Everything you do ought to drive the experience of that patient. So whenever I come to work and whatever I do, I do not want to put a burden in front of getting to that. I think it's realigning people's vision around the center of it. I think it's having an opportunity to be heard but an opportunity that they also are part and parcel of solution and alternative. One of the things that I've found very briefly that helps in a, in a pragmatic way, when people come up with a problem, I think when you engage them in conversations, also to give a little space for them to come up with a solution and actually write that solution down. There is a big difference when you begin to actually put th thoughts on paper Go through a basic SWOT analysis, teach people how, what are the strengths, what is the reasons, why is this happening? And a lot of times problems begin to organically solve themselves by people putting it on paper and having that consultation, giving a little bit of space. Some things need to be solved immediately. That's a different issue of safety. But most of these problems with a little bit of space and that, you know, sitting back and writing it down. Uh, can really be, I think, can be resolved. So I think that those are some of the thoughts that comes to my head. Absolutely. Modeling, as a leader, modeling behavior. And I, I think that's such a key point. And um, Mary, I want to give you a chance to respond as well. You know, what are some of the most com common conflicts that you see on medical teams? Well, um, we were talking about it today, um, actually, in, in a conference where 
um, there was a confusion, you know, in rehabilitation where I, you know, live and spend my time. It's all focused on the improvement of the patient. I love what you said, Sean, because if you bring it back to, is this best for the patient? It's really hard for the employee to get in the way of that because there isn't almost any statement you can say that stands greater than that. But it's where um, the communication is broken down so that when they want to talk about a patient, they talk about what the other discipline didn't do. So the conversation was between a nurse and a therapist. And the therapist had an idea of what should have been done and the nurse in her mind did not complete that. So instead of having the conversation at the moment in a team huddle about what's best for the patient, ended up in a um, event reporting. You know, there's this, you know, write it down, the nurse didn't do this. And when we sat down with them, it was really interesting because it was totally a miscommunication. Had they had the conversation at the moment, had you huddled around the change and had there been a trust. So to that point, we have work to do in culture where there's that trust factor. And after the conversation, you could see the weight lifted from each of the employees because they felt the avenue had been open because they both cared about the patient, but they both cared about the patient from their perspective. But when you put that patient in the middle, it made all the difference. So it, I think it's about bringing people together from, from different teams and having them hear where that other team member come, came from and have them bring the solution to the result. But it was, it was too often that silos, um, you know, I've seen that in my career a long time where we kind of run in our profession and we don't necessarily cross. So it's, um, it's you know, and we say it a thousand times, it's communication, but that's easily said um, because I can talk and, and you can listen and we didn't communicate at all. So how do you break it down? Those communications happen on that, that micro level that we were talking about before. And um, putting that, that patient at the center is absolutely some common ground. And Peter and Dr. Wong, um, any thoughts on the common conflicts that you see arise and resolutions for them as well? Uh, yeah, I'll add a, a couple. I think I completely agree with the prior statements. Uh, one, reiterate is not aligning around purpose or more importantly not being explicit or being comfortable saying we're curing cancer right or you know we're gonna give defect free care to a really common what is not being clear who's on or off the team because healthcare teams are fluid people come and go and 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 being clear about that uh, ambiguity of tasks or role particularly okay what is it the therapist's job is it the nurse's job um, and then a couple cultural ones that are I think often very destructive. Um, one, and we published on this, is what I'll call the untouchables. That tolerating people on teams who are either bullies or you know, uh, treat people disrespectfully because they're often people of power, they may bring in a lot of revenue, um, and we tolerate them far too long and they're really, really detrimental to team performance and the leaders often don't call it out and say, we have norms of behavior, you're not living up to them. You know, you either adhere to the norms or you won't be on the team. And the, the second is, and we see this play out all the time in often subtle ways, is a hierarchy of evidence or who's able to give voice or speak. So, for example, when you, we've interviewed, you know, nursing students or medical students or residents or nurses or therapists, people will often not speak up. Indeed, we did some studies that showed in Sentinel events, 90% of the time, 
somebody knew something was wrong, but either didn't speak up or didn't listen to 90% of the time, right? It's a stunning statistic because we have a culture often that is so hierarchical. And I mean, I'm sure with my, my own guilt in doing that and, tr and trying to learn as teammates, we'll often debrief after rounds or after an event to say, how was teamwork? And I did it once. I didn't notice anything. And I asked how the teamwork went and, and the um, nurse spoke up and said, well, didn't you just see what happened? And I said, well, we just made rounds. And she said, well, we formed a circle, but the resident came in a little bit late and he stood right in front of the bedside nurse. And after that, the nurse never said another word, right? And I probably didn't notice it because maybe it happens so often, right? I, I, I notice it now for sure. But those kinds of subtle things where somebody's voice isn't uh, encouraged to speak up, we have to be really attentive to because the, as we just all alluded to, every member of that team has wisdom. And if we can get that wisdom out into the collective meeting, we're gonna make better decisions for our patients. So I, you know, uh, or you can call me Ernie, I'm clearly the junior member of this uh, panel. So uh, you can't call everybody else by their first name. Um, and I don't I'm, know what so, you're trying to imply, Ernie, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> you guys are far more accomplished. Um, I, and I'm kind of new at this game. So my, my, my take on conflicts is I kind of bucket them into acute and chronic, all right? They're chronic conflicts that we know exist between teams and services, okay? You know, surgery wants you to admit the patient to medicine, medicine wants you to discharge the patient home. Um, and, uh, you know, those are, those are kind of innate and inherent in because of the work that we do. Then there are acute conflicts that occur because of the nature of uh, the situation and uh, the stress or uh, the degree of uh, familiarity or trust between the team members especially when it's an ad hoc team and you don't know people uh, in that group, it's, uh, it can lead to dysfunction and to um, conflict. And so, you know, as a leader, I feel like I have to take the initiative, kind of to what uh, Sean was saying, be the, be the role model. And I have to, you know, uh, bring the olive branch out and uh, bring people in. So just the other day, we had a trauma patient come in. Um, we heard the patient was coming in, uh, rolled over their car, uh, at the scene, long extrication time with um, probably uh, paralysis we knew from the waist down. So it was a terrible accident. Um, and the trauma surgeon and the trauma resident came down, and I had never uh, met them. I was a new, uh, new attending. So, you know, I could sense there was some discomfort already, and I knew that we couldn't really afford to have conflict uh, in that moment. So uh, these two professionals are in my ED. And so I have to just show them respect. Hey, how are you? Introduce myself to them, uh, find out about them, what they, you know, you know, who they are really quickly because I got two minutes before the patient comes. And when the patient comes, I walk up to the patient and I say, hi, I'm Dr. Wong. You know, uh, this is, uh, you know, Dr. X, he's the trauma surgeon and this is Dr. Y, she's the resident on the trauma service and we're gonna take great care of you. And then I just kind of let it go and then you can gauge how everyone's performance is and, and, and support. So as the leader, you have to be able to quickly do that and to kind of put yourself out there and um, take the initiative. I think that speaks to the humility. You know, you, you recognize that, well, this was your sort of domain, 
that the um, the you know engagement of the specialists is critically important. So you're you're more successful in that position because you you've had the opportunity to bring that in. And I think that that sort of ability to read the room and have that emotional intelligence, if you will, that assesses when do I step in, when do I step out, and and those are things that um, I think one of the things you've asked us to think about, Morgan, was how do we build leaders? And I think that, you know, that emotional intelligence is something that is innate, more more innate to some than others, but how do you kind of bring that, um, and, you know, to your point, you know, how do you recognize what you have to do in a situation? It's learned to some extent, but it's also something that's valued because you've seen success. So I do think that that full package of competency um, as well as in reading a room is, is a critical component. But Dr. Wong, for being the new guy, you gave a pretty sophisticated answer. <laughs> that's right. That's no right. longer. You can only be a new guy for that one question. Now I, you're on. I somehow have communication problems. I'm going to have to <laughs> sign up. Um, just a very quick, very quick add to what, Ernie, uh, what Ernie's contribution is. I think every time a leader, you see a problem arise, and many a times is that assumption, just like Peter sort of was alluding to, never assume, do not uh, delegate communication to somebody else on your own behalf. Uh, you know, you can solve huge major issues by understanding where it is. A lot of times as assumption, you assume that somebody said something, you assume that that's what they meant. And when you break that down and you make the call yourself, it absolutely resolves about 90% of the problems. Honestly, assumption is the one of the most dangerous things that you can do because you just really have no idea. And once you pick up the phone or at least you attend to it yourself, I, I, one of the problems I see with leaders is that they, you know, there's a point that delegation becomes dangerous. I think that kind of delegation is a dangerous delegation. You need to sort of communicate that yourself. If I could just build on what you said, and perhaps the flip side is one assumption we should make is positive intent. So much of conflict is I assume Ernie's, you know, has something out for me and, and it's a story I'm telling in my head or, you know, those trauma surgeons come down with a certain attitude or, you know, those nurses do this or, you know, those anesthesiologists and we make these judgments and we would resolve 90% of our conflicts if we just assumed people have positive intent. We're in this field because we want to do good. People are trying to do their best and approach the world with that mental model. And it, again, it would be more joyful and much more effective. Absolutely. I think Mary, that was, that was uh, something that Mary keeps uh, talking about, which is really true, is the humility. I think, if anything, I have a, a ball in my car that I call the ego ball, and I just physically throw it back in my car and close the door in the morning, just as a physical sort of, just put that home, just let it go. Let it go because it's the source of a majority of these issues. And I think humility puts, uh, is, we don't we think about it as a weakness, but it's one of the greatest strengths that a leader would have. Excellent. I mean, as a writer, I have so many poll quotes from this conversation. It's been incredibly insightful. And I want to thank each of you for speaking and sharing so many personal and elaborative stories today. Um, so thank you, Mary, Sean, Ernie, and Peter for joining us all today. And I also want to thank our attendees who joined us for making us a part of their day. And please check out future Becker's events. There's lots that are coming up this fall, and we hope to see you there. Thank you all again so much. Thank, thank you. you.